You're listening to The Voice. Benvenuti a Leuven. Leuven, you Добро пожаловать в Leuven. Bienvenue à Leuven. Willkommen in Leuven. Leuven에 오신 걸 환영합니다. Welcome in Leuven. What a piece of work is a man. How noble in reason. How infinite in faculty. In form and moving. How express and admirable. In action. How like an angel. In apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. And yet, to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Hamlet, Act 2, Scene 2. Hello and welcome. You are listening to The Voice on the radio. This is Darshan. I think in this famous monologue by Hamlet, we can see some of the concerns that Derrida addresses, which will be the topic of this episode. We praise humanity for their capacity to reason, infinite power in imagination and thinking its greatness in action, in construction, in production. And indeed, we are the paragon of animals. We are the best of the animals. Yet Hamlet praises man in order to contrast with the emptiness that he feels as a human being. And I think Derrida would appreciate the irony behind Hamlet's speech and how by highlighting the uniqueness and the power of human being, we overlook the shared vulnerability that we have with animals. And to focus on sharing the suffering, sharing the pain with other animals, Derrida wants want us to rethink of the tradition which distances the essence of man, of human being, from other animals. And that would be the focus of our episode today. And I will bring Aristotle into this conversation. Derrida will engage with the tradition led by Aristotle to talk about the possibility of friendship and the difficulty of fulfilling this most beautiful event of life. And to focus on animal suffering is to consider what we share with animals as the basis of our self-understanding rather than the difference. And to be able to cherish the commonality, at the same time respect the difference, seems to me is the takeaway that we can get from today's episode. So without further ado, let me introduce the first song by Of Monsters and Men. The song is called Dirty Paws. Goes. The story of the beast with those four dirty paws 
welcome back. The song you just listened to is Dirty Paws by Of Monsters and Men. For this episode, Jacob and I choose all the songs relevant to animals because that is the topic for our conversation today. The question is, how do you distinguish and define a human being from an animal? Let me give you an example. In Plato's dialogue, The Statesman, the young Socrates is learning from the Iliatic stranger, the method of division, and the conclusion they draw is that a human being is a featherless biped. And the legend has it that when a cynic heard this definition, went to Plato's academy with a plucked chicken and said, here is your platonic human being. However, we might not be able to find a better definition of human being than that. Philosophers have tried to do so. Two of the definitions remain in the common understanding of what a human being is. Firstly, human beings are, quote unquote, rational animals, zuon logon ekon, the animal with reason. And secondly, they are political animals, the animal who lives in the polis, in the city. Both definitions are coined by Aristotle, and Aristotle begins this long tradition of defining human beings in that way. Today's conversation is about how Derrida, the 20th century French philosopher, deals with this long-standing and deeply rooted tradition of defining human beings. We will focus on two topics. That is, first, how Derrida addresses the issue of animal. So what is an animal and how it relates to human being? On the other hand, we will be talking about how Derrida approaches the question and the possibility of friendship. Together with me to talk about Derrida is my friend Jacob. Jacob Quick is a PhD student at the Institute of Philosophy at Leuven, and I had taken his class on animality in the 20th century philosophy. Well, Jacob, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dashan. It's great to be here. So I think I'll play the role of the opponent of Derrida, let's say. So I will represent the philosophical tradition that Derrida is engaging critically with. So I'll be you know, representing that part and you'll do the job of the, you know, the punching of the, of, from Derrida. All right. Sounds okay. good. Yes. So let me begin with how those philosophers come up with a definition of something. So for example, uh, Plato uses the method of division. Roughly, you find things that have something in common with each other and then divide them according to what is different. For example, tortoises and sea turtles are very similar. They both have shells and etc. But because tortoises only live on land, which distinguishes them from other sea turtles, then you can define uh, tortoises based on what is distinct about them. Namely, they only live on land. Aristotle uses this method and applies it to the difference proper to human beings. Namely, what human beings do that is unique to them. And for Aristotle, the answer is that they do things with reason. So here I give you a quote from the Nicomachean Ethics. The human function is activity of the soul in accord with reason or requiring reason. And the word Aristotle uses for reason is logos, meaning speaking and language. Okay, so here is the first question, uh, Jacob. Uh, Derrida thinks this 
approach is problematic. Why, why does he think that? What is the problem of seeing human beings as rational animals? Yes, it's a good question. Well, as I'm sure as our discussion will show, there are multiple reasons why Derrida finds this problematic. But I will focus on one for now. Derrida argues that identifying humanity too closely with reason, or as a rational animal, as you just described, is a dangerous and inaccurate oversimplification of what it means to be human. Now, I say dangerous because historically, the claim that to be a human is to be a rational animal has been used toward unjust ends. You have to ask yourself, what is reason? What does it mean to be rational? The, the answer you give is bound to be specific to your language, culture, conscious and unconscious biases, etc. Mm -hmm. And then, and then you have a hierarchy at play, where to be truly human is to engage in reason. And then there are some people who are better at engaging reason than others. However, you define reason, of course. And from there, you can justify all kinds of oppression, because in trying to narrow down humanity to this one capacity, such as the ability to reason, you can end up excluding or denigrating a vast swaths of, of humanity in the process. Mm -hmm. So I, case in point, we can look at Aristotle himself. He defined humanity as a rational animal, as you have discussed. And interestingly enough, at least on the surface level, uh, surface reading of his, of his text politics, he used this very notion to justify slavery where he yeah. says some people are natural slaves yeah. in that they lack the cognitive capacities to, to rationally direct their own lives. And, and, and also uh, oppression of women as well. Uh, yes, misogyny. exactly. Yeah. So the oppression of women, because women, according to Aristotle, are not as rational as men. So then men need to be in charge, so to speak. And so for Aristotle, these natural slaves and, and women as well, are closer to animals than, let's say, the fully formed, fully realized human, which is mm -hmm. the man who can reason. Yeah. And so then he says, well, it's natural for those who can reason, those who are really human, farthest away from animals, to rule over those who are still human, uh, but, but a little bit closer to the animals than, than the, the reasoning man of, of ancient Athens yeah. in his context. So now this, of course, is just an example of, of, let's say, human injustice, human injustice towards other humans. And Derrida also believes that injustice towards non-human animals is also intertwined with this, this idea of, of humanity being this, this rational animal. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why is that in framing the discussion in terms of these these concepts, rational animal, yeah. uh, and so on, you then start to categorize and carve up reality according to your own thinking about reality, rather than engaging reality uh, and the world around us on its own terms, so to okay. speak. Ultimately, Derrida's problem with this notion of humanity as the rational animal highlights two important themes that come up throughout Derrida's work. 
Mm-hmm. One is how our conceptual schemes can establish, perpetuate, and justify oppressive tendencies in humanity. And also, secondly, how our ways of categorizing the world, especially with regard to humans and animals, usually overlook crucial differences and complexities, mm-hmm. much to our detriment and to the detriment of others. Mm-hmm. Well, let's see how uh, Derrida uh, responds to the, this longstanding uh, tradition. In his book, The Animal That Therefore I Am, Derrida talks about his cat. So he has his pet cat. And when he came out of the shower naked, he realized that the cat was looking at him. And then he felt ashamed. This experience ignited a train of thought that begins his work. So he started to reflect upon his shame by engaging with the philosophical tradition, which has taught him to be ashamed and provides people various reasons to be ashamed of different things. So Derrida noticed two things, that because he's naked and to be naked is something that one might be ashamed of. And here, shame is not used in any kind of moral sense. It's very rudimentary, some, some kind of unease. And then he thinks, but if, if the animals does not see him in the same way as human beings see him, why should he be ashamed? Surely the cats could not care less uh, if you are naked or not. So I'm wondering, uh, Jacob, why do you think Derrida chooses this example? And as you said, he wants to divert our focus from the human-animal distinction, which focuses on language or reason. And then he provides us with another scenario in which not so much difference is at play here, but the, the appropriate response is the issue at stake. Yes, I, I think you phrased it well there, that Derrida is trying to shift our attention from the human-animal distinction itself to the practical question of how to respond to animals. And he has a nice quote in that passage where he says, the animal looks at us and we are naked before it. Thinking Mm. perhaps begins there. Now, I think when coming to terms with this text, I find it helpful to actually bring in a, a distinction that Aquinas uses. Uh, between comprehension and apprehension, where he he says to to comprehend is to have exhaustive knowledge of a subject. Nothing about the object that you are thinking about eludes your conceptual grasp. So that's comprehension. Apprehension is being acquainted with something. You have remoteness and proximity. So there's a mysterious nature to whatever you encounter, such that you don't fully understand it. But nonetheless, you are intimately acquainted with it. Mm -hmm. So using that distinction, uh, which Derrida doesn't explicitly use, but I think is helpful uh, for interpreting this text, he's basically saying we focus so much on comprehending animals, trying to have this exhaustive knowledge of these things that we think about, whereas we should actually channel our energy toward apprehending animals, towards encountering them, and not trying to fit them within any tidy, neat theoretical category. So to illustrate his point, he tries to practice what he preaches, in that he, he's describing, according to him, is a real interaction he had with his cat. And he, and he clarifies, you know, this, I'm not just using a metaphor. This is a, an actual living cat. 
this actually happened. I encountered this cat and it caused me to confront the inadequacy of my own conceptions about myself and about, about the cat and also animals in general. Now, when reflecting on this interaction, Derrida implies that it makes him feel vulnerable because it, it very much problematizes his own self-conception. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be myself, Jacques Derrida? And encountering this mysterious gaze of his cat, he, he reflects on the symbolic significance of his own nudity. As you mentioned, he just got out of the shower, he's naked, and he feels ashamed. And the symbolism is quite complex in that he's making reference to the Garden of Eden in Genesis, where thinkers have gone for millennia to try and parse out what it means to be human. So if you want to understand what it is to be human, go to Genesis. Let's look at this very important foundational text. And just as Adam and Eve were naked and ashamed, he also feels naked and ashamed under the gaze of his cat. And this calls him to revisit the Garden of Eden and in so doing, revisit the very origin of the question of what it means to be human. So for him, this is not a question that is settled, but one that we have to keep revisiting. And this interaction is bringing him back again to this, this question that has, in a way, been haunting humans uh, ever since we started thinking about it. And part of this return that he makes once again highlights the unreliability of concepts. As he explains, and as I mentioned earlier, he, it, he really emphasizes that this cat is not just a metaphor. This cat is not just the idea. His cat is not something to be thought, but someone with a unique perspective, much like Derrida himself. So there again, you have this inadequacy of conceptual thinking and what he will go on later to argue leads toward injustice. Now he has this, I think, a very... Uh, beautiful quote when he says of his cat, quote, it comes to me as this irreplaceable living being that one day enters my space into this place where it can encounter me, see me, even see me naked. Nothing can ever rob me of the certainty that what we have here is an existence that refuses to be conceptualized. So ultimately, according to Derrida, we should stop being so obsessed with defining animals and humans, but devote our attention to how to best respond to animals. Great. So I want to pick up several things. I like the Aquinas distinction between comprehension and apprehension. The first is quite theoretical, high-level scientific knowledge, which we all strive to arrive at. And right. the other is really the everyday meaningful ground of communication. And we don't have to comprehend everything in order to apprehend it. It seems to be the idea is even though we can't comprehend those things, there's no problem or there shouldn't be any problem in our way of apprehending it. Then it links to what you called unreliability of concepts. I'm wondering if concepts are unreliable, what makes apprehension reliable. So how do we find a rel reliable ground for apprehension? Right. Yeah. That's, a, yeah, that's a tough one. 
while discussing the unreliability of concepts, it's also the case that they're not useless. They are there as gestures in a sense that point us toward a reality beyond themselves. And Derrida also discusses this in that he, he is quite keen on the inadequacy of language to capture reality, but at the same time, we need to use language. So there is no such thing as a pure language, uh, but rather language is this inefficient, but highly practical, useful, and indispensable mode of, of communication and engaging with the world that should lead us to apprehension. Now, the reliability of apprehension itself, it, it's difficult to, I guess, defend theoretically. It seems to be more, more of an experiential yeah. um, verification, where once you experience it, then you, then you can kind of see, see, using the term loosely, you perceive the importance of, of what is going on. I think it's, it's similar in a sense to many forms, almost all forms of, let's say, religious thinking, but also you, know, you, you led that um, Chinese philosophy reading group. Yeah, uh, that was very good. And we discussed a lot of Buddhist texts. And that's, yeah. that's a big theme in Buddhism, where people, you know, people will ask the Buddha or a Buddhist philosopher, you know, how does this work? And, and how can you justify this? How do you defend this? And Many times I'll just say, well, you just have to try it yourself. At some point, you just have to experience it yourself. And I think that's part of what Derrida is saying here is that you need to just look at animals. And if you really, really just kind of take away some of the conceptual baggage or yeah. see the concepts for what they are, just bridges to, to a greater reality, mm -hmm. then you will, you will recognize the value, the infinite value and, and deep mystery of these animals. Uh, that I encounter when I encounter my cat. Because I'm also wondering, we can also contrast the inadequacy of concepts and the, the adequacy of animal apprehension because they are, they are extremely successful. I mean, I think all living beings, the, to, to be the way they are, to be themselves, they are extremely successful given whatever capacities they're able to uh, have and to thrive and really flourish if nothing hinders them. Do you think he's also pointing to the intrinsic adequacy of non-rational faculties? Yeah, I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but I think that's a good way of describing it. Well, there is a, a depth to this apprehension, to this practice yeah. of apprehension. Yeah, there is an adequacy there that nonetheless causes us to recognize, let's say, unfathomable depth that nonetheless cannot be, yeah, cannot be captured, but it, it can be, it can be experienced yeah. in, in a very deep and meaningful way. Yeah. Much like I think when we discuss, for instance, love, if you, if you love someone, it, you can't really justify your love for someone to someone else. It, it's, yeah. It becomes very hard to do so yeah. because the things with which we are most intimately familiar are also the things that are most difficult to to put in term to, right. to describe in terms of language and, and concepts and rational argumentation. So, so love will be something you can't comprehend, but you should be able to apprehend by your experience. Yes. Okay, so at least one thing that uh, Derrida focuses on in our experience with animals is suffering. So he picked that out as the the things that demand a response. 
And uh, in that shift from, uh, let's say, focusing on human reason on animal, animal lack of reason, he focuses on the shared suffering that uh, all animals have. And he, he quotes Jeremy Bentham, the founding father of utilitarianism. In his uh, introduction to the principle of morals and legislation, Bentham says, quote, the question is not, can they reason, namely animals, can animals reason, nor can they talk, but can they suffer? Why should the law refuse its protection to any sensitive being? The, the concern for animal suffering is very sensible and it's is as old as any philosophical tradition itself. As we know, uh, Buddhism considers suffering to be the basic condition of all living beings and not even animals, all uh, plants as well. And they take the elimination of suffering as its mission. So my point is, you know, one doesn't not, does not need a philosopher to tell them to be compassionate towards uh, animals. So the question is, why should suffering be the basic concern in our response to animals? Yes, with this focus on suffering, Derrida is problematizing the, at least you could say, broadly Western, uh, even Cartesian, you know, tradition influenced by Descartes. Uh, this Cartesian philosophical way of, of thinking about animals in that much of his audience, much of his intended audience in, incorporates these philosophers that he he argues do not do a good job of, of thinking about animals and giving them the respect they deserve. And one of the ways in which he thinks that can be addressed is by focusing not on, not on this human-animal distinction, but the fact that animals suffer. And if these philosophers like Descartes and others uh, really took that into account, then they they would have done a better job uh, mm. of thinking through this animal question. And that's what Derrida is trying to do himself. Now, that being said, there's also another layer here where he is, he is channeling a little bit of Emmanuel Levinas, who was a contemporary, a friend. And Levinas has this notion of the other with a capital O. And the other is, is someone who calls us out of our own egoistic ways of, of navigating the world. Yeah. And for Levinas, the suffering of the other kind of disrupts our ways of thinking and, and ways of moving about the world and, and shows us that, oh, that we have obligations to others. Mm -hmm. And this is not only just a practical issue, this is a very deep existential issue in that we can only understand who we are through the eyes of the other, through the perspective of the other. Now, what Derrida will criticize in Levinas is Levinas is very anthropocentric here. He mm -hmm. mainly focuses on humans and the human other. And when asked about it, asked about animals, Levinas gives different answers. He's either ambiguous or he'll say no, an animal cannot be another. Sometimes he says maybe. But what Derrida is doing with this interaction with his cat and discussing it, he's saying, actually, no, my cat is an other. And my cat calls upon me to reevaluate the categories I have about myself, about what it means to be human and what it means to be animal. Mm -hmm. And so animal suffering, the suffering of the other, 
should jolt us out of our overly confident and complacent ways of thinking about animals and about ourselves. And the ideas of humanity and animality for Derrida are intertwined. So you can't interrogate one without also implicating the other. Anytime you try to answer the question, what does it mean to be human? At some point, what it means to be animal is going to come up in that discussion. Right. And then if we take the other's perspective into account, which according to Derrida, we have to, this means that a failure to factor in the animal's perspective is also a failure to understand ourselves. And so the perspective of animals are pieces of the puzzle, so to speak, for not only grasping animals themselves, not only trying to understand animals themselves, but also for understanding human identity. And we ignore their perspectives much to our peril. An interesting, interesting dynamic here is that Derrida's writing can often, well, his, his, his prose is very dense, as you know, it's quite difficult to unpack all that's going on. Uh And in this text, it seems like the gloves really come off where he is very much disturbed by the immensity of, of animal suffering in the world. Mm-hmm. And, and he is talking, trying to address philosophers and saying, we are complicit in this. Something about how we think about animals has brought this about. And it's high time we reckon with that. Okay, I have two questions, but you can save your answer after the intermission. The first question is about focusing on suffering rather than happiness. I mean, I can understand, uh, you know, this emphasis on suffering. It seems that suffering are more easier to be apprehended, uh, whereas it's much harder to to think about what is happiness for an animal. In the same way with human being, really, we don't really know what makes us happy, but we surely know what makes us sad. So I'm wondering if you can talk about that as, uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, it's about the problem of anthropocentrism, focusing on human beings. I'm wondering if animal and uh, human distinction is not made clear to us. When we say we are anthropocentric, because being an anthropos is already uh, an animal, how do we really distinguish between when are we projecting ourselves but when are we really sharing the other uh, animals suffering? And this uh, leads to my next topic, which is about friendship, in the sense that friendship is where the other becomes the problem, but also solution, uh, becomes the hero, but also the villain, villain of this tragedy or comedy of, uh, of life. But we'll take the intermission first. We're gonna play the song by uh, Bear Sten. And the song is called Stubborn Beast. Enjoy. Such a stubborn beast Is best away from the floor You've enough pride For all of us As you wander your island Unborn and unloved Set fire to the bridges To a carried across
with those letters well, They're all strewn across your bedroom floor Such beautiful words, but you just can't remember who they're for. Welcome back. The song you just listened to is Stubborn Beast by Bear Stan. And let me just recap the question I have. The first question is about the focus of suffering rather than happiness. And the second question is about how can we tell when somebody is being anthropocentric rather than simply sharing the, the animal part that human beings have. Yes. With regard to the first question, I, I would guess that part of his emphasis on suffering is one aspect is the power, a passive power sorts, this Derrida mm -hmm. discusses and also in connection with Levinas, where you know, let's say you you're walking you're walking on the street, um, you see someone in pain, and and they're crying out. They're crying out in pain. Or you can we can even include animals in this. Animals crying out in pain. They, in doing so, there is a certain power that they that they can have uh, on you, because they because you are you you are being called upon to act even if you're not being addressed directly you feel this this kind of magnetic uh urgency yeah. to to move toward them to help them which is often why when confronted with immense suffering we look away because we we can't we just have to look away because you know we maybe can't handle the immensity uh, mm -hmm. of the suffering that we encounter and so Derrida will focus on suffering as this motivational force of sorts mm. that can really jolt us out of our own complacent ways of thinking, perhaps more so than, than happiness or flourishing. I don't know if he would express that completely, but I, but I think that's some of what's going on there. And also, secondly, Derrida describes himself as being part of the Abrahamic tradition which for him primarily means Judaism and Christianity. He was ethnically Jewish and he was heavily influenced by Christian thinking, not as much Islamic thinking. He wasn't as familiar with uh, Islamic thinking, but specifically Judeas Jewish and Christian thought, which both uh, have a strong emphasis on the suffering of the other and how that calls us to act. Of course, in Judaism, you have, you have the widow, the orphan, and the stranger, in that you are judged by how you respond to those uh, categories of, of marginalized people. And of course, in Christianity, you have, you have Jesus, who is the, the suffering savior. And so I, those would be two reasons uh, why I, I believe Derrida will focus on suffering more so than happiness. And with regard to the second question, the short answer is there's no, there's no straight answer to when we know we're being anthropocentric and when we aren't. It's just a question that's going to constantly haunt Derrida's thought, which he thinks is, is what it's supposed to do. We should, we should always interrogate our thinking about animals and never assume that it's, it's spot on and that it's not anthropocentric. Right. Um, but in that sense, since we are human, inevitably we're going to have a certain human perspective 
So it's also going to be a matter of degrees, not kind. So it's not, there's never a clear defining point where you move out of anthropocentrism, but degrees in which you move closer to the animal and be less human-centered in your thinking and actions. Right. I think it, it goes very well with some of the problems of friendship because people often say, well, Aristotle at least says that the problem with friendship is you never know when you are being selfish or you're being egocentric or you're being really concerned for the other uh, as the other. And that is the question that Derrida takes on in his book and the essay, The Politics of Friendship. It includes a very provocative quote. It says, oh, my friends, there is no friend. This is a quote Diogenes wrote about Aristotle. Apparently that's something Aristotle says. And it's a quote that Montaigne, the Renaissance French thinker, quote, when he wrote his famous essay on friendship. The point of this quote is, according to Derrida, the painful irony and the performative contradiction. The painful irony being, of course, you already addresses the audience as your friends. It's painful because you tell them that you're not friends. Its performative contradiction is that it is verbal speaking. It's a saying, say something to someone, which is a performance, and it's a contradiction. So, and I think many people would sympathize with the sentiment expressed in the statement, namely the sometimes dissatisfaction, disappointment of friendship, which one holds dear and expects highly of. Derrida seems to want to remind us of the impossibility of friendship even for human beings who allegedly are the only animal capable of friendship. Jacob, why does Derrida do that? His concern for the response to animals and the impossibility of friendship seems to point to a, a paradox or a contradiction between the basic response we are capable of to another and the ultimate response we are unable to have with another. Yes, Derrida's discussion of friendship highlights another broader theme throughout his work, which is that our most lofty and valued ideals, like friendship and justice, are ultimately impossible. They are impossible to attain or fully realize. But impossibility for Derrida is not justification for pessimism. Like, mm. oh, it's impossible, so let's not even try. It's actually quite the opposite. The impossibility of friendship, for example, calls us to chase after it, but at the same time, not delude ourselves into thinking that we have attained it in its entirety. I think that his discussion of law and justice is quite helpful here, where he has an essay where he quotes Pascal, Blaise Pascal, who says, Justice without force is powerless, and force without justice is tyrannical. And with this quote, Derrida brings up law standing in for force and justice, where he says, we make laws in an attempt to capture justice, but at the same time, we never completely succeed. That's why we're constantly revising laws. And so justice is not this thing that we should possess or believe we have attained. In fact, the greatest threat to justice is believing that you already have it. 
rather justice is this ever elusive, but again, using the, the metaphor magnetic notion that calls us, calls us out of our regular habits, regular ways of, of living and interacting with each other to say, no, let's keep revising these laws. Let's keep, let's keep listening to other voices that maybe are silenced or oppressed. And let's strive towards this justice, which is ultimately always going to remain on the horizon, just barely eluding our grasp. But nonetheless, in so doing, it motivates us to follow it, to seek after it, to move forward. So returning to friendship, we wouldn't claim I am the perfect friend or I have the perfect friendship, but that shouldn't give us cause for despair. It rather highlights the value we place on friendship and the unattainable ideal that animates and motivates us to seek after it. So much like justice is not something we should strive to possess, is is not something we should strive to possess, but is that which we could say challenges the logic of possession altogether. Mm -hmm. And that's, according to Derrida, what is happening when we talk about friendship and when he describes friendship as impossible, both with regard to humans or maybe even animals as well. Mm -hmm. It's this never-ending process of dynamic growth. Then I have a question about those ideals and uh, the inadequacy of concept that we were talking about before. So the idea is, well, animals seem to be content with whatever they are doing if they are left unhindered. They don't have the paradox of the impossibility of something and nevertheless striving for it, it seems. Then the magnet, as you call it, of concept is only available to human beings who are able to use concepts. So I'm wondering how, how would uh, Derrida address this, the power of the concept, yet at the same time, it's in- inadequacy. Because you can't really doubt something and believe in it at the same time. Well, I think that brings up an important clarification when discussing these Derridian concepts of Monsing concepts, Derridian notions, terms yes. of, of friendship and justice, in that he doesn't refer to them as concepts. He doesn't think they are uh, concepts. I see. We can we can create concepts about them. Okay. But, um, now, what they are, he's not going to to define or be mm-hmm. quite clear about. But I'd say it's not simply conceptual. It is something that that which draws us forward, that which haunts us, that which calls us to be better, and yeah. which we we cannot necessarily name. Um, John Caputo, he's a Derrida scholar. He has a nice quote where he says, we, we, we cannot name justice properly because we would have to name uh, all persons who have ever existed because right. there is this notion of, yeah, justice is not this abstract thing, but something concrete and has to do justice to the uniqueness of every single, uh, yeah, every single person or someone, human, animal, et cetera. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, then it, it may, it's an open question as to whether it's going to be exclusive to humans. Because mm. 
it may be the case that animals do long for for these what what we call justice what we call friendship hmm. and there are certain let's say rituals yeah that that we even uh, that have been observed amongst animals we have elephants uh, who mourn their dead and yeah. and have funerals bury the dead magpies do the yeah, also yeah. Have, have a funeral ritual, of course, using these these loaded terms, but they're about the best we can do. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you have uh, a lot of what Jane Goodall has observed with chimpanzees, for example, right. and yeah. certain, uh, she calls it the waterfall dance. There's one where, where the chimpanzees, they dance around a waterfall mm. and they, at one point, and then they, they stop and stare at the waterfall. And it seems by all accounts to be some sort of religious ritual as they can't come up with any other explanation. There's no kind of strictly utilitarian value to it. So I, I bring those up just, just to perhaps open up the possibility that this ineffable, unfathomable mystery of reality and value that we strive for and long for may also be recognized in varying degrees outside of our species as well. Um, I, I like that very much because the fact that human beings are able to coin something doesn't mean they are the only ones who recognize something. However, uh, it does point to the problem of sharing. So what are the limits and uh, the impossibility of sharing something? Well, Aristotle thinks that sharing life is the defining feature of friendship. And sharing life simply means to live together in whatever way that is possible for a human being uh, or an animal. However, there is a quote I want to bring up just to exemplify how Aristotle thinks how limited animal sharings are. So here is a quote also in Nicomachean Ethics. It says, in the case of human beings, what seems to count as living together is the sharing of conversation and thought, not sharing the same pasture as in the case of grazing animals. Aristotle has no problem by observing that animals living, live together uh, with each other or with different species. He seems to have a, a rather restricted criteria for sharing. He once says, What's the point of eating together if you do not talk? Something around, along those lines. And of course, talking is where logos or reason really present itself in life. Um, and this goes back to the earlier point about suffering. I think Aristotle is mistaken about, let's say, cows sharing only the grassland, which I think it's, it's not true. They, they have a recognition of each other. They have uh, moms and, and calves, and they have the, the head cow, uh, etc. But I'm wondering how Derrida would respond to the possibility of sharing that is opened up by reason, that is infinitely more complex and maybe contains more failure than the basic rudimentary sharing uh, of animals. Because I think, at least for Aristotle, he does not want to patronize uh, animals by focusing on their suffering, nor does he want to flatter them by their ability to share. Yes, I think Derrida has some, he has similar sympathies in that he doesn't want to go to the extreme of, of 
patronizing animals nor just completely excluding them. Yeah. I've talked a lot about how he discusses similarities that we overlook between humans and animals. But at the same time, Derrida is very big on emphasizing that, yes, humans are unique. He's, Mm. He's not going to deny that. Yeah. He describes two popular ways of framing human animal distinction or lack thereof. On one hand, you have a strict divide in which you have all you have animal and then you have a pretty straight line nice straight line and then you have human Mm -hmm. and yeah something distinguishes human from the category of animal on the other hand you have a a, what's in some ways a maybe a backlash to that uh, influenced by let's say darwinian thought that humans are just animals so there, there, it's not, let's not have this line. It's just, it's just animals. Humans are just one species. That's it. Derrida is not a fan of either of these approaches. What, with regard to the first approach, he doesn't like the categorization of animal, uh, of the entire animal kingdom into just one neat and tidy category. Yes. He says this, this, this overlooks differences. It homogenizes the entire animal kingdom and then partitions humanity off from it. It's, yeah. it's far too much of a binary to, to adequately reflect the complexity uh, of what we're dealing with. And then likewise, he's saying, well, let's not also just subsume ourselves into this one homogeneous category. What he does say is that we should think of of this human-animal distinction not in terms of a single indivisible line, but more than one internally divided line. With that, he's saying that it's not a matter of difference, but differences. So, you know, I as a human am different from a chimpanzee in, in a way that is different from my relationship with a shark or a lizard or a bee, or a snake, or uh, a magpie, you know, he's saying this is so, there are so many different complex relationships and variations that we should, we cannot hope to create some nice, clean, tidy categories and believe that it actually reflects this diversity. So there is a certain human uniqueness, there's certain aspects of humanity that will not be shared, at least to the same degree amongst uh, animal species. But for Derrida, we have to kind of go to the ground and navigate those differences um, rather than just, I guess, think about them. With regard to friendship, I think, well, Derrida is not a fan of straight answers as this discussion probably shows. So, I mean, he would treat it as an open question, but I think he would caution um, he would caution against saying, okay, animals can be friends just like humans, because that's, that's just doesn't reflect, yeah, the diversity and the mm-hmm. distinctions at play. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, he wouldn't want to close off from the get-go animals as a whole from, from participation in this activity that we call friendship. While cautioning against those extremes, I think then he would um, direct us to then uh, go to the ground, so to speak. And right. to not just think about animals, but with them. 
Well, then let's also go to the ground and talk about plants. Oh, yes. Because the classic Aristotelian distinction is, of course, human beings are rational animals, animals are sen sensitive living beings, and plants are basic living beings. And depending on how much you share, you belong to certain different species. What we share with all living beings is life, is phenomena of life. And maybe we share with animals more because we have feelings. But then why, why stop there? Why stop at uh, feelings? Why don't we go all the way to, to life? Yes, uh, it's a very, a very good question. That has become uh, a subject in a lot of the scholarship around, these, around animal philosophy that is inspired by Derrida's writings. Mm -hmm. in, in an interview that Derrida did with the, the French philosopher Jean-Luc Nancy, it's entitled mm. Eating Well. Derrida does say that in the same way that we need to deconstruct the human-animal binary, we also need to deconstruct the animal-vegetal binary, yeah. so the animal-plant binary. But at the same time, he seems to address that binary in, in some of his texts, but it's not with the same, you could say, I guess, clarity that he does the human-animal binary, and he doesn't spend as much time with it. So, yeah, why stop with feelings? Why stop with even animals? I think is it's a question that Derrida does raise himself, even if in his writings he will he does favor uh, the animal discussion more than the plant discussion. And so, there are some scholars who trying to, I guess, fill in those gaps. Yeah, it's an issue that I think Derrida, it's a question Derrida is sympathetic to, even if he didn't really perhaps address it head on or as directly as, as the issue of animals. Great. Thank you, Jacob, for the conversation. Thank you for having me, Dashan. Well, let's end uh, with the beginning. It's a song by Holzer from Eden. for me